My name is Jimmy Funches, one of the pastors here at the Oaks Church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 8. This chapter is a very well-known chapter. It has one of the most famous uh, verses in the Bible, Romans 8.28, right? You know the verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to His purpose. Right? This chapter also talks about the assurance that believers have in Jesus. That the end of the chapter says that there's literally nothing. If you are in Christ, there's nothing that can separate you from his love. That's good news. It speaks about the unimaginable glory of our eternal home. It talks about how in that eternal home, bondage, sin, death, pain, Tears, fears, all of those things will be gone forever. It's a great chapter of the Bible. But of course, we have to remember that no chapter of the Bible should be isolated from its context. So as we read the Bible, we should be continually encouraged that context is everything. Context is everything. That should really be burned into our brains. So before we jump into one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible, let's take a look real quickly at his literary neighbors. So far in Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul has explained how the sin of mankind is met with Christ on the cross. So that sinners can be justified through faith in Christ. And what Paul's trying to get us to see is that you don't need to work for your salvation. In fact, you cannot earn your salvation. Salvation is a gift, and salvation is ultimately a gift that you receive. It's eternity with God. It's salvation from your sin, and it's given to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to say, right then and there, we've already failed uh, already again this morning. Did you hear what I just said? Did you hear it? Right? Sinners like you and sinners like me can actually be redeemed and reconciled to a holy God who is more holy and more great beyond our imagination. And the sin that has separated us from him, we can be redeemed from that and reconciled to God through this gift. And there's nothing that we have to do for it. There's nothing that we have to do to earn it. All of the greatest things in life you have to work so hard for, don't you? But this greatest gift in Christ Jesus, you do not work for. It is a gift of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. That right then and there, we could just close the Bible and end and go out and be encouraged. This is a amen, brother. That's the energy. Let's keep it, right? Salvation is so good. This is such good news. In fact, this news is so very good that Paul actually anticipates that this gospel message will receive some maybe misconceptions about it. There's going to be some things that uh, maybe we are like, wait, okay, the message is that good? Well, what about this? Right? And that's what Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. He says, you know, the gospel is this free. If it, if it really is this good, and if our sin can be dealt with just so easily, won't, won't that just encourage us to sin more and more and more? Like, won't that just lead us to sin more? That's what he says in Romans chapter 6. 
What about the times in my life that I mess up? Right? If God has saved me from my sin, what if I go back to that sin? What if I do fall into it? Am I still a Christian? Paul anticipates these questions. He tells us that grace will ultimately lead to devotion. In Romans chapter 6, he tells us that guess what? Even though you have been justified through Christ, you are still going to wrestle with sin. You're still going to struggle with sin. In fact, he says sort of that tongue twister there in Romans chapter 7 that we all know so well from personal experience. The things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I do want to do, I don't do. That's where we left off just a couple of weeks ago, leading up to this greatest chapter in the Bible. If this gospel message is so true, if I am called to be sanctified and to be obedient to God, then, then what should be my response whenever I struggle with sin? Whenever that inevitably happens, as I look out here to all of you, as I look to my own life, there's so much sin represented right here in this room from this past week, just this last week. How many things have we failed with? How many things have we struggled with? So if all of that is true, and I'm supposed to be sanctified, I'm supposed to be obedient, what's my response whenever I struggle with sin? What do I do with all of that? That's the question that Paul's going to answer in our text. So let's read, beginning in our text this morning, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Let's read verses 1 through 11. God's word says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For, for God has done what the law, which is weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the the spirit for to set the mind on the flesh is death set the mind on things of the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot and those who are in the flesh they cannot please God you, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. And he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, I want to tell you where we're going before we go there. Let me tell you what we're going to be doing over the next few minutes. 
this morning, we're going to draw out just two things from our text. First, we're going to talk about the cancellation of condemnation. It's great news. That's going to be the part of the sermon where there, there should be a lot of amens, because if you know this story to be true, then you know just how good it is. This is the good news of the gospel. So we're going to go over that. But then right after that, we're going to talk about two possible ways that we can respond to this gospel message. So two things from these opening verses in Romans chapter 8. But you know, if you were to try and summarize this whole passage in just one sentence, you might say it like this, and I want you to notice this Trinitarian flair in this statement. Because the Father, Son, and Spirit are all active in these verses. You ready? In the sovereign plan of the Father, the suffering of the crucified Son cancels our condemnation and the spirit of the resurrected son enables our sanctification read it one more time in the sovereign plan of the father suffering of the crucified son cancels our condemnation in the spirit of the resurrected son enables our sanctification that's the big takeaway, 30,000 foot view of what's going on in this text. But let's just look at those two things this morning. The first thing that we see is that the crucifixion of Christ cancels our condemnation. Crucifixion of Christ cancels our condemnation. Several years ago, I began an attempt to memorize the entire chapter of Romans chapter 8. Now, I'm not up here tooting my own horn. I'm up here telling you that I have not yet accomplished that task. Uh, in fact, uh, I am, much like many of you, uh, I, I fail those types of things all the time. I think, man, it's a great thing. I'm this is one of the best chapters in the Bible. I'm going to memorize it. I'll get seven, eight, nine verses in. Life might get busy, things happen, and then you sort of get sidetracked, and then what, what inevitably happens? You take it up a few months later. You know, like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go back. I'm going to memorize again. So, but I can't start like right at the chapter, or at verse 9, where I left off. i got to go back to the beginning because I've forgotten it. And so what ends up happening in my life is Romans 8.1 is just this verse that I've memorized like a million times. Um, are any of you like that here this morning? Uh, or maybe you just know this verse really well because the verse is so good. But I think a lot of us might try to memorize this whole chapter because it is so good. But we fail. But, but we know Romans 8.1 so good. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. I got that one down. It's the other 38 verses that give me uh, a little bit of a hard time. But I think that we come to Romans chapter 8, and even as we read this first verse, I think perhaps we're tempted to be unamazed, which is ultimately very tragic for us to be unamazed at this message. Paul tells us that there remains, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there remains no condemnation. Seems simple enough. You might have that verse memorized. But we should notice that Paul uses a unique word right here in Romans 8, 1. The word for condemnation, kataprema, is only used three times in the entire New Testament. It's used once here, and it's used twice in Romans chapter 5, just a couple verses apart. So the only three times that this word is used in the entire New Testament is right here in the span of about three chapters of the Bible. And right here... Romans chapter 8, as we see this word condemnation, it makes us think we should go back to when it was last used. 
which would have been in chapter 5. And when we go back to Romans chapter 5, we see that Paul sort of uses this word, word to explain that condemnation entered the world through one sin, through Adam's sin. That because Adam sinned, sin is now passed down from generation to generation. The Bible teaches it, and our experience also teaches it. I have never had to teach any of my three children how to sin. They all just get it intuitively. They just sin right on their own. I don't have to teach them that. The sin is passed down from generation to generation. Condemnation enters the world through one man. And then we catch up to this Romans 8, 1 verse where we see this word condemnation again. And now we see that that same condemnation that entered the world through one man is met with another man. A new Adam, if you will. But what he does with that condemnation is he cancels it through his work on the cross. Here in Romans 8, this condemnation is canceled through the work of Jesus. And I just want to say, this may seem simple. This may seem routine to those of you who have been in church for a while. But perhaps... For a moment, we need to dwell on this a little more to, to make it really weigh on our hearts. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, what is condemnation? It's only used three times. What is it? What is this condemnation that you speak of, Paul? Well, be, to be condemned is to have a final judgment rendered on your account. This is courtroom language. I know as those two words, courtroom language, some of you might want to fall asleep because you're not interested in that sort of thing, but hang with me. This is courtroom language. It speaks about how someone is judged and they're found guilty. They're found guilty for something. Condemnation then ultimately leads to judgment. This judgment is you are guilty. And for us, church, that is not good news. And that's what Paul has been saying so far in the whole book of Romans. That we are all sinful. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then later in chapter 6, the wages, the punishment of sin is death. This is not good news. This is condemnation. The right punishment for sin is eternal death and separation from God. And this is the sentence for those who are found guilty in the court of God's law. Clearly, this condemnation is something that we would want to avoid. On July 8, 1741, there's a guy named Jonathan Edwards. He preached a very famous sermon that would end up sparking the Great Awakening in colonial America. It's a long time ago. It was before America was the United States of America back in 1741. And this Great Awakening happened where people all over colonial America were being saved through the preaching of God's Word. They were confronted oftentimes with a very difficult message, a very scary message at times, and they repented. They put their faith in Christ. It was really, truly something that's amazing. And, and you know, the sermon that sort of sparked all of that, uh, I want you to, it's, it's okay to be scared of this title because it is kind of a scary title of the sermon. But the sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. People do not title their sermons like that nowadays, do they? Uh, I'm not sure if you're a guest and you came here to the Oaks and uh, the title of my sermon today was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You'd be like, this is not my vibe. I'm not going to come back here. Right? We don't, we don't talk like that anymore. But Jonathan Edwards, he had this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
And in this sermon, Edwards described the reality of a sinner's standing before a holy God. What he's trying to communicate is that, yes, God is holy and loving, and he did send his son Jesus. But the reality of all of this is that our sin, even the most minute sin, even the sin that we think is perhaps really not that big of a deal, that one sin has separated us from God forever. And now we are standing in open rebellion to God because of our sin. And without some sort of mediator, without some sort of salvation, we are in the hands of an angry God. Yes, God is full of love and mercy, but that doesn't mean he's not also full of justice and wrath, because he most certainly is. So Edwards is preaching this sermon that God's love does not rule out his justice. And when you read through this sermon, it is pretty scary at times, but it rightly articulates our standing before God if we are condemned. If the judgment on our account is guilty, then what Edwards is describing is what that looks like. So I want to read you just a couple of paragraphs from this sermon. Brace yourself. But I want you to see that this refers to our condemnation. Edwards says this. He says, You have offended God infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet, it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire at every moment. O sinner, consider the fearful danger that you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and are ready every moment to singe it and to burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you for one moment. Your wickedness makes you as if it were heavy as lead. Entertain downwards with a great weight and pressure toward hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and to keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Wow. No amens after that one. Understandable. They don't preach like that today that much anymore, do we? But nonetheless, what Jonathan Edwards is preaching is 100% biblical. That for those who are not in Christ, the condemnation is severe. When we look at the Bible, we learn, we think of this condemnation. We, we should think of what Edwards is saying here. When we think of the word condemnation, we should think of that. It's scary. But you see, God is right to sentence sinners 
to their just punishment. That doesn't make God unloving because we've sinned against God. We are guilty. And the punishment is just according to God's law. This is, it, it all makes sense except for us. And we said, that's not fair. That's, that's not loving. It, it is. It's exactly what it is. The condemnation and judgment for sin is not unfair. It's not unrighteous, but it's exactly what each and every one of us deserve. And this isn't in my notes, but I can't help but say it. If you think that that is unfair, if you think that that is unjust, then guess what? The cross of Christ is really going to make you upset. Because if we who are dead in our sin, if we who are in open rebellion to a holy and perfect God, if we who have rejected God in all of his perfection, and we are guilty of that, and we do not experience his punishment and wrath, but there was someone named Jesus who was perfect. He did all that the law commanded. He was the ultimate picture of love. And yet, he is the one who experiences condemnation for us. See, that's unfair. That's unfair, not our punishment. Who are we to say that God's judgment is not fair? No, we look to the cross of Christ. You want to see something that's not fair? That's not fair. But it is good. Well, that's the message that we cling to with everything in our being. So with all that in mind, let's read this again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There you have it. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. All the things that we read from Mr. Edwards, there's none of that for you. There's no condemnation. None. Not a zilch. Zero. How, how on earth could that possibly be the case? If we have sinned against God, how could that possibly be the case that there's no condemnation? After all, just at the end of chapter 7, remember Paul explains that sin still remains even in the most godly people. So how can they have no condemnation? Paul tells us in the next few verses, those who are in Christ Jesus are set free from sin and death through the loving plan of the loving Father. Do you see that in the text? This plan of the Father was to send his own son in the likeness of flesh. Jesus would take on flesh. That he would dwell among us. That he would be perfect. And that he would be the one that's judged in our place. The ultimate picture of inequality and unfairness. The law, as Paul has explained earlier in Romans, is unable to justify us before God. In fact, the law accuses us of trespass and sin. We're not able to save ourselves. And it's such an important thing for us to hear this morning. We are not able to save ourselves. I just wonder, are you here this morning thinking to yourself, maybe not even actively thinking, but believing in your heart, but I'm not that bad. I do good things. God's ultimately going to be okay with me because I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as these other people. Friend, I just want you to know that's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that one trespass of the law means that we are in the to God. Even at one point. 
If you're like me, you've sinned a lot more than once. You've sinned more than once today. You stand guilty before the Lord. You're not good enough to save yourself. You need someone outside of yourself. And that's what this text tells us, that we are unable to earn our salvation, but God the Father sent His only begotten Son to stand in our place and to take our punishment for sin. And that's the only possible way that we can be reconciled to God, and it was the Father's plan to do all of this. Amen? It's a loving Father. So we learn here that if you are in Christ, if you have been set free from the law of sin and death, for you, there is no condemnation. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ cancels our condemnation because Jesus took that punishment for us. By way of application, I just want to say, I wonder if you are here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're just, maybe you'd say, I just don't know. I'm not certain. I, I don't know for sure that I would go to heaven. I wonder, how would you respond to a passage like this? You know, the punishment and judgment for sin is real. While we're tempted to, to maybe bristle at such absolutes, I wonder this morning if the Lord might be speaking to you in your heart right now, this very moment. Did you know that this moment, the guilt of your sin, can be washed away forever. You too can come alongside other brothers and sisters. You can confess your sins, turn away from the world and all of its fleeting pleasures and take hold of Christ and say with your new brothers and sisters in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for me either. Christian, for you, I just want to apply this to you in two ways. Number one, slow down down. Take a moment to reflect on the comfort that we have in this gospel message. There is therefore because of Jesus there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. None whatsoever. If you are in Christ, there is no judgment. There's no punishment for you. There's no guilty verdict. Let me ask you, did you sin this week? There's no condemnation. Did you do something this week that you've done a hundred times before and promised God 99 times that you would never do it again? And yet there you stand guilty of the same sin. Brother and sister, there is no condemnation. None. Did you fail in such a familiar way, ushering in feelings of doubt, despair, dismay? There is no condemnation. None. Because Christ took it for us. First we take comfort, but I think also there's a word of caution for us. One that I've sounded already in these opening minutes of this message. As Christians, the cancellation of our condemnation can sometimes be taken for granted. We have to be careful that we don't grow tired of this message. Right? The work of Christ on the cross must never bore us. Let me ask, do you find yourself a Christian maybe taking the gospel for granted? Are you somehow less amazed by the gospel right now than you were when you first became a Christian? Perhaps today, maybe you just need to go home this afternoon, get by yourself, and read Psalm 51 where we read, 
David said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Maybe that's what you think. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful truth. But if you're like me, you might ask yourself, how can I know for sure that I am in Christ Jesus? If there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, I want that. But how do I know for sure that that's me? How can I know that there's no condemnation for me? And so that leads us to verses 11, I'm sorry, 5 through 11 in our text, where we see sort of two possible responses to this message. We see the way of the flesh and the way of the spirit. So the second point, second final point today is the way of the flesh versus the way of the spirit. Verse 4 is a very important part of this entire passage. Paul writes that Jesus was sent to the earth, you read it there, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in Christ. No. That's not what it says. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. As you read that, uh, you might think that's kind of strange. We would expect the fulfillment language to be applied to Jesus. That Jesus fulfilled the law. That Jesus fulfilled all that we need for righteousness. So how, what does this mean that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us? Well, let me just say, when Paul speaks of the righteous requirement of law, he's not talking about justification. Here he's talking about sanctification. You see, the death, burial, resurrection accomplishes our justification, our legal standing before a holy God. And yet our justification ultimately gives way to our sanctification. So justification is God saying, I am declaring you not guilty, no condemnation. And then sanctification is us saying, okay, we are now sanctified in Christ. We are made clean, made pure in Christ. That's what sanctification is. And justification necessarily leads to sanctification. So Paul is essentially saying that God cancels our condemnation. That guilty verdict is gone through the work of Christ in order that we might be turned away from sin through the power of the Holy Spirit and please God. Did you hear me? That we can turn away from sin and through the power of His Spirit we can please the Lord. And what all of this means is that when we are confronted with the message of God's love and grace through Christ Jesus, that Christians will inevitably live according to the Spirit. And those who are in Christ will inevitably not live according to the Spirit. Paul wants us to see here, there's no middle ground. If you are in Christ, you will live according to the Spirit. If you are not in Christ, you will live according to the flesh. There's no middle ground. It's either or. There's no in-between. So all that being said, let's take a look at what it means to live according to the flesh and what it means to live according to the Spirit. Sort of two lists that we can create here from these verses. Those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on things of the flesh. Of course, that's death. Those who live according to the flesh are hostile toward God. They do not submit to God's law. They are unable to please God. They do not have the Spirit dwelling inside them. That, those are all things that are true of people who are in the flesh. 
see all those right there in verses 5 through 11. But the text also talks about what it means to live according to the Spirit. It mentions three particular things. It says those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, which is the life of peace. It says also those who live according to the Spirit have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them. And that those who live according to the Spirit are alive in Christ. See, those sort of two different ways of life. Paul does this even with the language of the passage he talks about living in the flesh, living in the spirit, living in the flesh, living in the spirit, living. He does that several times, at least three times right here in this text, contrasting these two possible ways to live. As we read through verses 5 through 11, we see the life of those who walk according to the flesh contrasted with those who walk according to the spirit. And again, I just want to say, there's no gray area here. Those who are truly in Christ will live according to the Spirit because the Spirit of God lives in their hearts. And of course, I just want to say real quickly, pastorally here, that doesn't mean perfection. When I say that you'll live according to the Spirit, that doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. You can try, you will not succeed. You're not going to be perfect. But sometimes I think that just because we won't be perfect, we maybe care a little bit less about spiritual maturity. We say, well, I'm not perfect anyways, so whatever. That's not the Christian's attitude. The Christian's attitude is, I want to live in step with the Holy Spirit who dwells within me. And so, I think this means necessarily that we will be mature. We will grow on to spiritual maturity. We will grow in our faith. If you are just stagnant for years and years and years, what are you doing? The Spirit of God lives in you. You should be growing towards something. And, and I think sometimes in the Christian life, because we, we have this attitude of only God can judge me, uh, which is not true. God will judge, but God's not going to judge us. God's going to judge those who are unrepentant. We judge one another to help one another. Proceed toward faith in Christ. That's a part of what it means to be a church, to build one another up, right? But because we have this attitude, I think sometimes we vilify sanctification. That we think about sanctification and people that are like really trying hard to honor the Lord. They're setting up boundaries in their lives. Maybe they're taking really active steps. They're saying, hey, I'm not going to have internet on my phone because I know what that leads to. Hey, I'm not going to go to this bar because I know that I will have too many drinks. Hey, I know that I'm going to fall into this sin, so I'm going to set this up. We, we look at people like that sometimes, and we think, man, they're so legalistic. What a horrible thing to say. But we would look at someone and say that their pursuit of Christ is legalistic. So that God cares about our holiness. Those things should all be a part of our lives. And when we look down on people for that, we're doing a disservice to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are longing to strive after the Lord. Well, as we look at Romans chapter 8, I think it's worth noting that the Spirit here, the Spirit is mentioned 30 times in the book of Romans. 30 times over 16 chapters. What I want you to see is that 20 of those 30 times are right here in Romans chapter 8. 20 of the 30 times. Let me just take a moment to say, Christians, we should be all about the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the key to unlocking all of this that we're going to see in just a few minutes. 
what I want you to see in our final minutes together is a very important, practical point that Paul is making, okay? I love practical stuff. I hear some pins clicking. This is a good time to click your pen and key in because this is very helpful to us. He makes this practical point right in the middle of this passage. In the midst of all of this doctrine, this logical argument, Paul gives us an incredibly useful truth. Are you ready for it? He says, in order to live according to the Spirit, that's what you want. In order to live according to the Spirit, we must set our minds on things of the Spirit. It's right there in the text. In order to live according to the Spirit, we have to set our minds on things of the Spirit. So what Paul is telling us is that the front lines of the spiritual battle for our souls so often will take place in our minds. Simply put, Paul is telling us, stop setting your mind on things of the flesh. If you are in Christ, stop setting your mind on things of the flesh. Instead, set your mind on things of the Spirit. If you're wondering how you can focus on the Spirit, if you're wondering how you can stop neglecting the Spirit and instead focus on the Spirit, look no further than your own mind. What is it that you are thinking about? Have you ever thought about that? What are you thinking about? Where does your mind wander when it isn't engaged in careful thought? What are the familiar thoughts that continually cross your mind? It's the battle of the mind here that matters. So what I want to do with our last couple minutes is I just want to apply this part of our text to three groups of people. Three groups of people. First, I want to talk to just spirit-filled Christians. If you're in the room, for those of you who are here and you're focused, you're focused on spending regular time with the Lord. You're focused on spending regular time with Jesus in His Word and in prayer. For those of you who are committed to the local church so that you can build up your brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you who have your minds set on the Spirit, my encouragement to you, keep it up. Keep it up. It's a good pursuit. Keep it up and take comfort that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And know ultimately that it is the Spirit of Jesus that's making you keep it up. It's not something for you to go smell. It's not something that you ultimately do. It's something that Christ is working in your very heart. Keep it up. Look to Christ and, and look at him and say, he's worthy of all of this. The whole world can pass away, but I'm looking to Jesus because Jesus is better than everything. First, the spiritual Christians. Second, I want to talk to you if you might say, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I don't have a relationship with the Lord. Or maybe you're just not sure about it. I just want to say to you, the life lived according to the flesh will afford you temporary pleasures. If it wasn't somehow pleasurable, then it would not be something that people fall into. The pursuits of the world, while they may afford you temporary pleasure, they will lead you to condemnation. A life lived according to the flesh is selfish, it's hostile to God. And in the end, this life lived according to the flesh will receive condemnation. So if you are here this morning and you have never given your life to Christ, if you're just not even completely sure about that, 
know that the horrors of condemnation that we've talked about, those horrors of condemnation are inescapable. They're imminent. It's real. It's not fake. I'm not up here selling you a bill of goods. This is all so real. But I also want you to know that Christ has made a way for you this very moment to be redeemed and reconciled and for that condemnation that you're staring right in the face of that to be removed once and for all, to be forever in the rearview mirror, the rearview mirror to be broken off, and you never have to think about it again because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's available to you right now. That's you today. We're going to have pastors at the back of each aisle at the end of this gathering. After communion, come, come and see one of us. We'd love to tell you more about how you can do that today. I need to be sure today that you are in Christ and that there is no condemnation for you. The third group, I'll, I'll call this third group unfocused Christians. Unfocused Christians. And I think, of course, some of this is a spectrum. We deviate. Sometimes we're unfocused. Sometimes we're really spirit-filled and chasing Christ. But it's sort of a spectrum that we walk back and forth on. And sometimes I'm just not doing well. And then other times I'm pursuing Christ. But for those of you who might find yourself at the other end of the spectrum this morning, unfocused Christian, I just want to say your growth and spiritual maturity is something that the Lord commands of each and every one of us. Perhaps your growth and spiritual maturity right now has come to a screeching halt. Rather than focusing your mind on things in the spirit, you have become unfocused. Thomas Manson, a 17th century pastor, wrote this. He says of Christians who maybe are backslidden or unfocused, he says, they have gotten so little of the spirit that it affects their souls so that they're Imperfect and clouded with a mixture of remaining infirmities. What a striking way to describe the life of an unfocused Christian, right? This idea you have gotten so little of the Spirit. Perhaps there are some of you here today that need to take a self inventory of your life. So often, the things that we spend our time on will be the things that we set our mind on. So let me ask, what takes up your time? What takes up your time, friend? What takes up your sort of mental space? What are you thinking about? Do you fill your moments in your mind with social media and with screen time and worldly entertainment? Do you have a longer Snapchat streak than you do a streak of reading God's Word? Are you more concerned, even right now in this moment, about your fantasy football lineup rather than God and His Word? Do you spend more time checking on your investments than investing time in prayer? Are you now, right now, letting your mind wander to what kind of career you might have? How far you'll be able to climb the ladder rather than thinking about eternity? Are you pursuing Christ as much as you're pursuing a relationship with that boy or that girl? 
What are you setting your mind on? What are you using your time for? Brothers and sisters, if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, you're proving that you're in Christ. You're proving that there's no condemnation. But setting your mind on the things of the flesh will only result in pain and a lack of joy. So church, is your mind set on the things of the Spirit? Or is your mind set on the things of the world? Today, if you're an unfocused Christian, let me just ask you, will you resolve in your heart to set your mind upon the things of God? To look at the unimaginable excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you strive to honor the Lord by taking captive every thought, seeking to bring it under subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ? Simply put, will you put your mind on things of the Spirit? Brothers and sisters, I just want to say, this is a lost me calling. This goal is really far ahead. It seems difficult. You see, setting our minds on things of the Spirit is no small task. And I'm sure that there are some of you here right now that are tempted to fall into grief and to cry out, Pastor, how is any of this even possible? I get what you're saying. I understand what Paul's saying, but I just don't think I can do it. The answer to that question comes in the final verse of our passage. Look with me in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Guys, I could have just an absolute Pentecostal moment right now with that verse. Then this is like the most underrated part of Romans chapter 8. Do you see what's going on there? The, the same power that was able to resurrect Christ from the dead. Jesus, who took on the weight of sin in the whole world and suffered that punishment and died for it. There's no greater condemnation than that. There, than, then the same power that raised him from the very dead right now is in your heart. Do you see that? This is the key to the entire passage. The key to all of this is that the spirit who dwells in you. And all this means we see we are called to obedience. We're called to live a spirit-filled life. We're called to live according to the things of the Spirit, which is going to mean setting our mind on the things of the Spirit. And all that just sounds like it's so difficult, so taxing, so time-consuming. But do you see the grace of God? That God calls us to live according to the Spirit, which seems like an impossible task. But then He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts and to guide us every step of the way. You see it. We're called to live according to the Spirit. It's not you. It's the Holy Spirit who is at work within you. The key to all of this, brothers and sisters, is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection power that is at work in your heart. You think you can't defeat that sin? You think you can't shake it? Resurrection power. You think that you'll never be able to mend that relationship, to overcome that fear? Resurrection power. 
You think you'll never make it to the end? Because life is too long and life is too difficult and I have too many doubts. Resurrection power. It's the key to all of this. In a sermon on Romans 8, 11, Puritan Pastor Thomas Manton wrote this. Hang with me here because this is good. He said, Let us give up ourselves to the Holy Spirit as sanctifier. Set open your hearts that he may come into them as his habitation. A man is not said to dwell in an inn where as a stranger or wayfaring man he goeth aside and tarry for a night. No, use all Christ's holy means that he may fix his abode in your hearts, that he may dwell there as at home in his own house, that he may be reverenced there as a God in his temple. Church, the key to everything right here at the outset of Romans 8 indwelling the presence of the Holy Spirit. The plan of the Father was that the Son would give His life so that we could have our condemnation canceled and that the Spirit would then dwell in us so that we might live according to the Spirit. The key is the Spirit dwelling in the church. Let me just say something. I think Thomas Nancy was right. Far too often, rather than treating the Holy Spirit, the master of our heart's household, we treat them like a hotel guest. He's here one day and he's gone the next. He's not the master of this household. He's just passing through. What would your life look like? What would your life look like if you lived according to the Spirit? You pray to God, oh God, fill me with your spirit. Oh my Lord. See, if you are in Christ, your condemnation has been canceled once and for all through the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the very spirit of God is at work in your heart right now at this moment, working inside of you. Helping you and empowering you not to live according to the flesh, not to fall prey to the things of this world, not to fall for the tricks of the enemy, but to live according to the Spirit, setting our mind and our hearts on things that are above. My only question for you, for you this morning, is this Does the Holy Spirit dwell in your heart? Let's pray.